BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Just the News AM, I am Carrie Sheffield and glad you're here. I hope you had a relaxing and fun weekend, one of the last ones here of the year. And tonight, don't forget, the two planets look like they're going to kiss. You want to make sure you tune in for that solstice. It's going to be exciting. Well, we had a lot happening over the weekend between the stimulus agreement, President Trump giving lots of thoughts over the weekend about everything. We're going to have get into all that, dive into that. And whether or not, according to some conservatives, that stimulus plan has some fat, some pork. What do you think? We're going to talk about that more later, but in the meantime, 2020 is wrapping up. We laughed, we cried. A lot of us are glad this year is wrapping up, but I have an executive coach here and my friend, Ben Scott, who's going to walk us through New Year's resolutions. Are they worth making? Are they worth breaking? What should we think about it? Ben's here. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for the opportunity. I really appreciate that. So. Ben, so let's think about New Year's resolutions. So yes. a lot of people, the year is winding down, the new year is going to be winding up. How do we think about New Year's resolutions? And a lot of people, maybe within even the first three weeks, they break them. That's correct. Absolutely true. All those statistics are very true. So one of my thoughts are, why wait to the new year? I mean, it's a great point to start because starting is always great. But why wait to that time frame? If you want to keep your New Year's resolution goals, right, have an accountability partner. Well, let's back up one step before that. Do you really know what you want? That's part of the problem. If you really know what you want, clear decisively what you want, then when the obstacles, distractions, obstacles come up in front of you, then you can stay on track. So first of all, I talk about the three M's for me when I do my coaching. So M cubed, mind shift matters most, M squared, mind management, and then M is move. So when we go back to the first M, that's where I'm talking about knowing exactly what you want. You can't be vague. Whatever your belief system, the universe, God, nature of my belief system is God. If you know exactly what you want, put it out there, God will then start moving things towards you so that you can take those actions to get the things that you want. Then the next thing to me is mindset or mind management, the M squared. That's an accountability partner. So if you say that you're going to go to the gym at 5 a.m. and you and I make that deal, and then I'm there at 5 a.m. you don't show up, Ben's calling you like, what's going on? <laughs> what's up? So that helps us keep on track. If you say we're going to lose weight, which is probably the number one thing that we're going to do, right? We're going to lose weight and get in shape. But we don't have an accountability partner to help us stay in that mindset. So that's where coaches come into play. That's where friends come into play even a video. So one of my resolutions was earlier this year when we went into COVID lockdown is that I was going to start doing uh, on the treadmill. So what I did was I did an hour on the treadmill, running, jogging, walk, jog, whatever it was. I recorded it. Then I posted it on my website. Do you see how I did the accountability thing? I had the accountability of the recording and put it out there. So mind management is really very important. And the number three is move. You've got to get off that fourth point of contact. You've got to move. You've got to take action. Because execution is where the results happen. If we don't execute, then we won't get the results. 
If you don't have something to keep you accountable, then you probably are not going to move. And if you don't do the mind shift to know exactly what you want, then it's all for naught. So I really believe it all begins with keeping our resolutions, or, but don't wait. What's wrong with starting today? If you know you need to lose weight, if that's what you say you need to do, or if you know you need to improve your relationships, if you know you need to do that, start today. But I do understand that 1 January 2021 is a great starting point. I do understand that. And sure. And in terms of accountability partners, how do you pick one? And also, if you are the accountability partner, how do you not be obnoxious and annoying, how do you, but also demand results? Got it. So let's start with the second one. How do you not be obnox obnoxious or annoying? Ask. So am I giving, am I being too much? Am I being too little? Because if we don't ask, you don't get. Another quote from another book I read, not as often as I should read, says you have not because you ask not. So I ask, am I being obnoxious? Am I being too much? People more times than not will be honest with you. And then you can also read what's going on. What the, what's the results in the, in the interaction you're getting? So absolutely. And what was the first question? Forgive me. Uh, in terms of how do you pick your accountability yeah. partner? So again, finding someone that you mesh with. So do you have that correct vibe? Do you have that correct, uh, that, that, that symbiotic uh, feeling with the other individual? But Oftentimes I see people, whether it's a family member or maybe someone they were a close friend with, if they then try to move it into a different form of a relationship, whether we're talking business accountability or some form of accountability or something like this where you're kind of shifting the power dynamic where you're asking someone absolutely. to kind of rein you in, excellent. sometimes things can get hairy. That, absolutely right. So as I say with some of our goals as well, and we have talked about that, but some of our goals, some need to be very private only to me, some what I share with a few people, and some I share to the world. Okay. So the same principle applies. If you know that, I don't need my mom in my ear, okay, because we know sometimes our parents, whatever, they love us and they want to protect us, but they also sometimes limit us. Well, then maybe I need somebody from the outside to come in drill sergeant style, right, because that's what I respond to. Or I need a friend that I can say that I don't want to let down, so I don't want to let Carrie down. So Carrie says she's going to be there, 5 a.m., I'm going to be there. So you've got to understand who you are, again, knowing what you want, number one. You've got to be very clear in what you want. And I don't mean I need to, I want to lose weight. I want to weigh X number of pounds by this date, so to speak. The same thing that way you can marry what you're talking about with whom you're talking with as well. I think that's the key right there. And what about when you, three weeks in, it's now yeah. January 21st. That's correct. You miss, you fail, you fall on your face, you stuff your face, or you miss a week of working out. How do you recover? Then you don't, you don't criticize, you don't kill yourself. Like a child learning to walk. When they fall down, we don't say stop trying. No, no. We say get up and try again. So that's okay. It's like the self beach diet. You, you make a mistake, then I decide that I'm going to start doing it again. I, I do it again. We only grow by failure. You, as, as Les Brown says, you fail your way into success. So don't kill ourselves if we don't make the goal. We can make the goal. But the goal is important. It's almost, almost as equally important as effort. Because effort gets the results. So if you don't even try, then guess what? It, it doesn't matter. So don't beat yourself up too much. And that's why you've got to get that accountability partner to go in there to, to give you the encouragement, be that negative or positive, depending on your needs, to help you move forward. So failure is not losing. Failure is only failure. Losing is when you quit. All right, Ben Scott, always appreciate your wisdom. Thank you very much, Kurt, for the opportunity. And everybody. Everybody needs a coach. Absolutely. 
Stay with us, folks. We're going to talk about the crisis over in China with the Uyghurs. Stay tuned. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey there, good morning and welcome back to Just the News AM. I'm Carrie Sheffield and glad you are here with us. So let's talk about what's happening over in China with the Muslim minority population. They've been just uh, incredibly suffering right now. And we have an expert who wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal on this issue that many Uyghurs are facing slave labor. And Dr. Adrian Zenz, he's a senior fellow in China studies at the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation joins me. Dr. Zenz, good morning. Good morning. So this op-ed that you wrote for the Wall Street Journal talks about the forced labor specifically on the industry of cotton. Walk our viewers through what they need to know. What they need to know is that uh, Xinjiang is a region with about 15 million uh, predominantly Muslim minorities, some of the largest ethnic minority groups in China. And this region produces 85% of Chinese cotton and Fasten your seatbelts, 20%, one-fifth of the world's cotton. Now, since 2017, Beijing has been putting over 1 million of the Uyghurs and other ethnic minorities in the region in re-education camps, in internment camps. But that's not the only thing they've been doing. A lot of the other adults who are not necessarily in the camps, they are putting through different forms of forced labor. And of course, harvesting cotton is a very labor-intensive process. It's uh, quite expensive also. And uh, in the past, they've been bringing in a lot of Han Chinese migrants from other parts of China. But now it's government policy to put the Uyghurs to pick cotton. And that's because they want to keep them occupied and busy. It's a way to save money because they don't have to travel as far. But even more importantly, it's a way to oppress these people, to keep them busy, preoccupied, controlled by the state, families separated, children in boarding school, and the economy humming. So in terms of here in America, when we talk about cotton, there's a, a long, sad history with cotton and slave labor here in the United States. Do you think what's happening in China is slave labor? Um, that is unfortunately a very likely term to use in this context. I, as an academic, have chosen a slightly more careful language. Also, it is impossible to truly verify what is going on on the ground, but we are talking a state-sponsored scheme of forced labor, and it probably would, in some respects, be appropriate to effectively refer to it as slave labor, although I would like to have uh, some extra confirmation, etc., which we cannot get at the moment. Uh, journalists who visit the region are followed, uh, some are detained, their footage deleted, they're being harassed, researchers have been detained. 
uh, and it's too dangerous to travel to the region. It's impossible to really audit what's going on, which is also one of the reasons why the fashion industry has to divest and pull out of this. And to that point, American consumers, talk us through what's happening when it comes to sanctions or even just awareness either here in the United States or the Western world and Europe. What are people doing? What are they doing in terms of sanctions or boycotting? So many countries have been very slow and hesitant to even speak out on what is going on. The United States just recently, a couple of weeks ago, uh, put a withhold and release order, effectively a ban on one third of Xinjiang's cotton production, that part which is produced by a particular uh, government entity. It's a paramilitary entity used that was set up uh, in 1949 to colonize the region. Um, this is a very important first step, but the United States government ban only affects one third of cotton production. Now, at the time, there wasn't hard evidence for this massive scheme of forced picking of cotton. Now the evidence is on the table. And now it's high time to put a ban on all cotton from Xinjiang, which more or less effectively means most of all cotton in China, unless you can trace it, which is a real problem. And also Chinese cotton products such as cloth and yarn are exported and used around Asian countries such as Bangladesh or Vietnam as the basis for making a lot of the clothing that we are wearing or that might be under our Christmas trees this week. So you're saying that the cotton might originate in China, but it might be shipped to another place like Vietnam. So if your shirt here says made in Vietnam, you think, oh, I'm getting Vietnamese cotton. It's not going to be forced or slave labor. But you're saying it's just been imported over so people don't know about the supply chain. In terms of other countries who are importing it, are they concerned like Vietnam or other, other countries or are they kind of in the same boat? Um. They are not necessarily in the same boat, but they are being agnostic about it at the moment because it's not gotten big news yet. And the industry is yet to take some really decisive steps. Uh, individual um, fashion brands have made a selective announcements. Sometimes that just amounts to telling their Chinese suppliers, we don't want any Xinjiang cotton. But the problem is, uh, what is the meaningful verification or enforcement procedure in those cases? What we really need is a large scale attempt by the entire global fashion industry to, f to fully divest from Xinjiang cotton, both in China and in other, in other countries, such as Vietnam or Bangladesh. And that's going to take several steps. That's going to take a lot of expertise. But it's, it's going to have to start, and it's going to be a process that we and the media have to follow closely to hold the industry accountable. And what about American consumers? What can American consumers do? Your average person may be watching this program at home. What would be their step forward? Their step forward is to, yes, look at the clothing label. Where's the clothing made? Of course, made in China and that there's cotton in it. Your chances that Xinjiang cotton uh, is part of that is our 85% at least, uh, even higher if you look at some of the mixing that's going on. But the other thing you really can do is to just increase your awareness to start posting about this on your social media accounts, to spread the awareness to your friends and family, and even better, to write letters to these fashion headquarters, to these corporate headquarters, because they take note, they read those letters, and they are already really worried, and they should get more worried. Can you talk a bit, a bit more about the general suppression of the Uyghur minority? Because it seems we've seen reports, for example, that the Chinese Communist Party, they in some ways want to extinguish this culture and want to basically snuff it out through over time. 
that's unfortunately very true. We are speaking of cultural genocide or ethnocide, which is the destruction of an ethnic identity. We are talking a large number of Uyghurs, especially the intellectual elite, artists, musicians, writers, etc., uh, professors, have been put into internment camps. Uh, many of them are now being sentenced to long prison terms, taking them out for a long time. And some of the lesser skilled, the lesser educated are being shifted to vocational internment camps where they're then released into forced labor. Often we are talking large scale industrial complexes or newly constructed industrial parks with money from Eastern China, from Beijing, Shanghai, Shenzhen, uh, Fujian, etc. Uyghurs are also transported along these supply chains and transferred to work in factories in Eastern China, including Guangdong. Dr. Zenz, in terms of, I want to move real quick, uh, just in the time we have, on the issue of the incoming Biden administration, because China has, in many respects, been put back on their heels by President Trump. What do you think will be the position of Joe Biden when it comes to the Uyghurs? Biden has said he will prioritize human rights, uh, and that would be a very important step indeed. He'll have to take some real specific measures when it comes to Xinjiang uh, and tackling the Chinese Communist Party because they're very smart. I think they're going to try to appease him on certain topics, such as climate change, uh, what you could call soft topics, in order to score some escape culpability in terms of national security. And that's something Biden really has to watch out for. All right, Dr. Adrian Zenz, we appreciate it. Thank you. Stay with us. We're going to talk stimulus with the Heritage Foundation coming up next. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Who is a senior policy analyst for, the, uh, for fiscal policy at the Heritage Foundation has a lot to say about this. Good morning, Adam. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. So we had word over the weekend that the Democrats and Republicans had come together on a stimulus package. You guys put out a report saying, hold your horses. This is wasteful spending. It should be more really, really focused on helping people with COVID issues. You're saying that it's more of a, a big Christmas tree with ornaments for any and everything. Walk us through what's in here that you disagree with. Yeah, well, you're, you're exactly right. The, the, the funding that is being proposed right now is... Uh, has been proven now to be ineffective. Uh, it's going to be counterproductive for the economic recovery. And it's also poorly targeted to those people who are actually in need. You mentioned these $600 checks, which sounds nice, but it's, uh, it's when we think about trying to get aid to those people who have actually lost their jobs, who have their businesses shuttered, uh, we shouldn't be sending $600 checks to the 150 million Americans who are fortunate enough to still have their jobs. That's just a waste of taxpayer resources. Uh, and it's, uh, it sort of shows that Washington isn't focused on the actual problem at hand, and that's containing the spread of the coronavirus. So when it comes to this idea to send a check to everybody regardless, this really got the universal basic income people excited. I'm thinking of the Yang gang with Andrew Yang during the Democratic primary. Do you think this is something that's going to become the new normal? I certainly hope not. Uh, you're right. This is uh, sort of baked into a lot of 
uh, progressive uh, policy proposals where they think the government should be simply just sending everyone a, a blanket check um, every month or uh, every every couple of weeks. And so it's uh, sort of a test run of, of, of that idea. And it's I think it's been been shown that it's actually not stimulative in the way that a lot of a lot of people talk about these policies. The the idea is that we should send money out to everyone. And they're going to go spend that and that in the economy and it's going to sort of boost the economy writ large. And we simply haven't seen that. We haven't seen it in the we didn't see it in the Great Recession when we tried sending checks to people and we're not seeing it now. People are, are putting it in their in their bank accounts and saving it for for later when they're actually able to go out and uh, and, and spend that money. So it's not boosting the economy now like a lot of people say uh, say it should. Uh, and it's the majority of that, those funds aren't going to the people who, who really need it. And so it just doesn't seem like the right time to be running these types of policy experiments. So you guys oppose it and maybe some fiscal hawks, particularly in the House, might be opposing this. Do you have any power to stop this? I mean, this is attached to a much larger bill. There's both additional COVID uh, provisions, and then it's attached to the sort of annual uh, big, what they call an omnibus bill, where they lump in government funding uh, sort of across the board, uh, stuff it with a whole bunch of other special interest uh, uh, subsidies and other provisions. We haven't seen the text yet, but there's likely thousands of extraneous, unrelated pages of special interest giveaways uh, attached to this thing. Uh, and so with a government funding uh, shutdown deadline looming, people wanting to get home for Christmas, this uh, this train is sort of barreling through. And uh, and unfortunately, Congress is very adept at writing these things uh, in back rooms, not showing anyone what's actually in it, and then, uh, and then saying, we've created this manufactured crisis, we have to pass it before anyone can actually read what's in it. So this is sort of Washington at its uh, best or, or worst. So in terms of debt and looking at the future, we have ballooning deficits. We have an enormous debt now. What's the path forward? Well, if Congress can't get spending under control in the near future, it means tax increases on not just wealthy Americans. There's simply not enough uh, income that high-income folks earn to pay for all of the things that, that Washington wants to spend money on. So it means tax increases on middle-class Americans like you see in Europe and other places around the world. We've just, for the coronavirus pandemic, Congress has authorized 2.2 additional trillion dollars in, in debt spending. Uh, that's about $18,000 for every American household. And so when uh, eventually in a year, two years, when uh, when Congress sort of gets their, gets their act together, they need to either cut spending or raise taxes. And uh, there's a lot of wasteful spending out there that, that can be that can be reduced, and that should be the, the appropriate path forward. So when you're talking about price tags, we have an article that our founder, John Solomon, put out today that the price tag was $900 billion for the coronavirus relief deal, but you were talking about a $2.2 trillion price tag. So you're talking about it because it's attached on to additional spending. Do you think that well, in some ways this has been hostage by people who just want to keep the government running and they're they're tacking this large package on. Well that the 2.2 trillion is what Congress has already authorized in new debt for the coronavirus uh, um, emergency. The additional 900 billion is what they're talking about now. Uh, so we're talking about an even even larger sum. But you're exactly right this sort of gamesmanship 
of waiting until till the last minute, holding uh, the coronavirus relief hostage for the uh, broader spending package, lumping it all together so it's hard to, to vote no on, on keeping the, the government open, and then attaching all of these extra extraneous special interest subsidies and provisions, often just for a year or two, to create another crisis in the future. Um, it's, it's really uh, unfortunate that this is the way that Congress has decided to govern. Now, Republicans would say they were able to get something that they wanted in this package, which is to keep out additional funding for state and local governments. Is that accurate? Yeah, it looks like that the funding for state and local governments is uh, it largely kept out. There is money for for schools. There's money for local transportation. So uh, it really depends on on what uh, sort of how you want to uh, how you want to sort of split that up. But the unrestricted um, hundreds of billions of extra dollars for state and local governments uh, was kept out, kept out, which is a good thing. We just saw, uh, got some new data from, from census that shows that state and local revenues are performing much better than expected. The aid that Congress has already set, sent to state and local governments is multiple times any lost revenue uh, that, they, that they've seen thus far. And so the, the idea that we should be uh, sending additional blank checks to state and local governments is, 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 again, really irresponsible, not well targeted, and there's really no data that shows that, that most states need those additional funds. All right, Adam, Michelle there at the Heritage Foundation, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me on. We'll keep an eye on the spending and what it means for you and your tax dollars. In the meantime, stay with us, folks. We've got more coming up about the Uyghurs in China. This is a huge story that I think, and here at Just the News, we believe is not getting enough attention because you're talking about the possible genocide uh, of an entire large group of people here in this world uh, at the hands of the Chinese Communist Party of China. Um, We're going to report more about this, folks. Stay with us. We will be right back. Hey there, good morning, and welcome back to Just the News AM. I'm Carrie Sheffield, and glad you're here with us. We're going to talk more about what's happening with the Uyghur crisis over in China. The Chinese Communist Party is continuing to repress this group, and I am glad to have here on the couch with me Mr. Sali Hudiyar. He's the Prime Minister of the East Turkestan government in exile. Good morning, Sali. Good morning. So talk us through first, how did you get elected? Because your government is spread out all over. You're here, you've got folks in Canada, Germany. Walk us through your government structure and and who exactly are you governing over? So uh, we're a government in exile that was set up in Washington, D.C. in 2004 uh, to represent the interests of uh, East Turkestan and its people. Um, It's a parliamentary uh, system uh, where local representatives are elected by local diaspora communities and they make up the parliament and in turn the parliament uh, elects the uh, president, prime minister and other uh, high-ranking officials. Um, We claim uh, to be the successors of the former uh, East Turkestan Republic which was overthrown on December 22, 1949 by the People's Republic of China. Um, at the moment, only our diaspora community has uh, say in, you know, a, a role um, in electing, you know, official uh, representatives. Um, however, once East Turkestan is independent, um, obviously there won't be a government in exile. We are just interim in the meantime representing our people. 
Sure, so how many people are in exile and then how many people are back home in the region? So in East Turkestan, we estimate there's about 35 to 40 million people um, that are non-Chinese people, Uyghurs and other Turkic peoples. In the diaspora, there's at least one million. Um, however, uh, unofficial estimates um, put it at up, up to five million. Mm -hmm. In terms of what's happening with the Uyghurs, what should an American audience know? So the American audience needs to know that what's happening to the Uyghurs is nothing less than a genocide. Um, the Chinese government in recent years has locked up millions of people in concentration camps and prisons and using them as uh, slave labor um, to, you know, working as slaves in, on cotton fields, to working, you know, in uh, factories producing products that are then sent here to the United States for uh, consumption by the American consumers. So in terms of the people themselves, this has been going on for some time, but has it been getting worse under, and what have you seen uh, from President Trump? Because President Trump has had a very aggressive posture toward China. Is it actually getting worse? So prior to the Trump administration um, speaking out on the issue starting in 2017, many, uh, much of the world didn't know about the Uyghurs. In fact, many people never heard of the Uyghurs. Um, President Trump uh, and the administration have been very, uh, uh, you know, have been raising the issue um, nationally and internationally. Um, and because of Secretary Pompeo's um, act, uh, you know, outspokenness, people know who the Uyghurs are. Um, this obviously, you know, has angered China, but things have uh, not gotten any better. Um, in fact, recently, just yesterday, the Chinese government announced that it's going to continue its uh, policies um, to, quote, fight against terrorism, uh, to push back against uh, Uyghurs, saying that, you know, what we're doing, not, like the Chinese government is not doing anything wrong, and it's just trying to uh, ensure political stability. And what about the Joe Biden administration? What have you heard? What do you expect to see there? So the Biden um, team had uh, made an announcement um, saying that they would recognize uh, it as a genocide um, during the election process. However, um, since, they, since the election process, um, since the like now that it's about to transition, they have been largely silent. In fact, Newsweek has reached out to them, even we reached out to them, and they haven't um, reached back out to us. So we're deeply concerned that they might uh, reverse you know, the policies that the Trump administration has done and that they might take the same position as the uh, Obama administration, which is a position of just silence. Do you think any of this might have to do with Hunter Biden? Because we have a Senate a group of senators who are investigating the, the incoming president and his business ties to China, do you think that there might be any sort of conflict of interest there? Uh, there definitely could. I mean, with the aspect of Hunter Biden, he actually invested in a Chinese company that was involved in the mass surveillance of Uyghurs in East Turkestan. So he was making money off it? Yes. And has, when you reached out to the Biden team, did you mention this specifically, that concern? I mean, we... Didn't I mean, we've raised that concern numerous times before, but 
this round we just were talking about them to you know follow up on their promise of recognizing this genocide to speak out to urge um, Congress you know to pass the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act uh, which has been stuck stuck in the Senate and we haven't gotten a response. Newsweek hasn't gotten a response either. So we saw the Trump administration has put on through executive order orders that American investors cannot invest in Chinese defense companies, certain Chinese defense companies. We have heard that there are some possible loopholes that people are getting around this and folks are worried that with the Biden administration the loopholes could get even wider. What have you heard on that? Um, we've heard the similar similar things. The Trump administration actually has done a lot uh, on this issue. They've sanctioned the uh, several Chinese companies that are involved in the uh, mass uh, atrocities that's happening in East Turkestan. Uh, more specifically, they sanctioned the uh, Bingtuan or the Xinjiang construction and production paramilitary force um, that is directly uh, responsible for these atrocities. All right. Well, thank you so much for letting us know about this. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Stay with us, folks. We've got a look at the Turning Point USA down in West Palm Beach, Florida. Don't you wish you were there? Stay tuned. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Hey there. Good morning and welcome back here to Just the News AM. I am Carrie Sheffield and glad you're here with us. Well, if you weren't in Florida over the weekend, sadly I was not. We have video for you so you can enjoy it anyway. This is from the Turning Point USA event, the big bash they have every winter. Take a look. This year has been one unlike any other. And when we were planning back in August and September, we asked ourselves, Will, should we host the Student Action Summit in Palm Beach? Because everyone, it's 2020 is the year where everything got canceled. And by not forcing anyone to attend, when everyone here knows exactly what's going on in our country, but believing in liberty and responsibility, we've had the most unbelievable, overwhelming response, thousands and thousands and thousands of students across the country. So you know what this event represents? This event represents freedom, that you can't shut down the country anymore. What, what has a higher death rate for your age group, under age 25, seasonal flu or COVID? Seasonal flu, absolutely, seasonal flu. But the thing is, you say that and they go insane. What do you think Mr. Jack Dorsey will do if I tweet that out later today? He'll go insane because there's only one truth and they have it. But this didn't just get started with COVID. You know when this started? Well, it started maybe longer ago than that, but with climate. The climate consensus. If you disagree with the climate consensus, you know, you're verboten. You should be forbidden from decent society. You shouldn't get to tweet. You shouldn't get to talk because you're, you're a contrarian. Anything that goes against what they say is the truth. But the thing is, is that's the opposite of science. It's the opposite of liberty. 
But liberty and science infuse each other because how do we get science? By questioning. What did I... We have seen people come after our freedom of speech. If the media and the leftists don't like what we say, you get banned, you get blacklisted, you get silenced. If you get your freedom of religion has been challenged because people have been told they can't go to church anymore, and if they go to church, then they can't sing. And then we've seen our freedom of assembly be threatened as well. People are actually being told in some states who they can spend time with, how many people they can spend time with, and that freedom as well is being threatened. What I wanted to tell all of you today is that that isn't happening in South Dakota. And I think if we were going to be real honest today, most of you in this room did not know who I was probably eight or nine months ago. The reason that you know who I am today is because the liberals have been busy kicking me in the head for all of the decisions that I've been making in South Dakota, for my people. They've been saying that I've been reckless, irresponsible. But I want you to know that my people are happy. They're happy because I trusted them. Do you know what the left teaches? One of the reasons I loathe the left, and I always draw a distinction between leftists and liberals, Liberalism has nothing in common with leftism. The tragedy is liberals vote for their enemy, the left. Leftism is the enemy of liberalism. I have a whole video at PragerU and a whole article on the internet on the differences between leftism and liberalism. Give it to all your liberal relatives and show them we conservatives are their allies. We conservatives are protecting liberal values. The left loathes liberal values and always had, and always has. And those are some of the star-studded names there at the Turning Point USA Forum down in West Palm Beach, Florida. Let's now turn to some student reaction. We had our very own Ben Burkwam. Take a look. We're live at the Turning Point USA Student Action Summit. Prager used Dennis Prager speaking right now. I just want to show you this. We are, this is the main area. There's several thousand students in attendance in here in the main auditorium. They have separation for COVID, so there's not as much seating as they had last year. But there are hundreds out here and thousands outside that haven't been able to get in. I want to show you this. I don't know if they've broken records on the numbers, but young people are starving for this. Come on, check this out. With hundreds more out here. Watching Dennis Prager as he speaks in the overflow area on couches. Of course it matters. Not seeing it live. That's all that matters. Now let's head out. Absolutely disgusting to me. There's they're so far from unity. Um, all they want to do is drive us apart. I've been called a racist for just being conservative, for just saying I'm Republican at my school, um, which is just not okay. That drives us further apart. And conservatives, I feel, are about, like, I have liberal friends. I listen to their ideas. I simply present mine and I get attacked. Um, and so I think we're actually the side of unity. We want to listen to them. We want to just, like, let them know what we believe, but not necessarily push it on them, whereas we get, like, attacked for just simply believing something. Oh, yeah. I just really, uh, like they were saying, hopefully we can um, invigorate this young group of uh, Republicans, conservatives. And really, I want to see, like, a wave of conservatism going forward. You know, that, like she was saying, there's a lot of people who are scared to, vo to voice their own opinions and beliefs, but hopefully we can see people who are, like one to speak up and that this awakes in this next generation and we go forward and change this country for the better.
What do you think about the Democrats just constantly saying, if you're a Trump supporter, you're a white supremacist, you're, uh -huh. you know, th this group of people, to me, I was there for the, tr the rally, the march, yeah. it's all America. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think the claims are, are baseless. I mean, it's, it's gaslighting just to keep us more divided, and it's unnecessary. And I think you see it in um, Trump and what he did in his administration. And really just when you talk to anybody who is a Trump supporter or conservative, you never get that energy or that vibe. Right. So it, it, it makes no sense. America is literally the best place ever to live. Brought so many people out of poverty. We have so many freedoms. Nowhere else has this. Right now, if I wanted to, I could rag on the best president ever and no one would do anything to me about it. You can't do that anywhere. You go to jail for misgendering somebody in Canada. Come to America. Come help us be great. Go ahead. Boom. That's it. That's how it's done. Right there. Right there. And I like that kid dancing in the background. All right. That does it for us right now, but we'll be back in just a few minutes. Hey there, good morning, and welcome back to Just the News AM. I am Carrie Sheffield. I'm going to end the show queuing up something. It's probably going to be a future battle on Capitol Hill, and it's over Joe Biden's nominee to head up the Pentagon. There was an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal from a congressman who is a former Marine himself, Mike Gallagher, and he says that while he voted for the exemption for Jim Mattis, and what this exemption is, is that there has to be a seven-year gap between when someone leaves the military and when they're allowed to serve atop the Pentagon. This hasn't happened. The last time it happened was many, many moons ago, and the argument is that this should be very, very rare, exceedingly rare. So this happened once under Donald Trump, and now it looks like they're going to ask for another exemption for Army General Lloyd Austin. And so this go-round, Mike Gallagher says, hold your horses, I am not going to do it. I made that mistake once, and looking back, he says he thinks that there was mismanagement. He says he respects Jim Mattis, but he says that he thinks that he didn't have enough perspective. He didn't have enough outside experience to be just more of a civilian leader for the Pentagon. So this will be a battle. We'll keep you posted on it. The other interesting points that he, point that he makes is about the fact that uh, both Mattis and Austin are coming from a land perspective and from the Army. And he says that we need someone who has more Navy or water experience because of China. And China is doing all sorts of aggressive things in the South China Sea. He also says that this nominee from Biden, Austin, is an expert in Middle East affairs and not in China, which is a much bigger risk from his perspective. All right, that does it for us here. Stay tuned for War Room coming up next.